Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Dara Goldstein, and my latest book is Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. For more Cookery by the Book, you can follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy Cookery by the Book. Now on with the show. The first time you traveled to Russia was in your imagination at five years old when you discovered a small wooden cup in your parents' closet. What was it about that cup? I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was so different from anything else I had ever seen. It was wooden and engraved with woodcuts and painted. And the scene was of uh, onion domes, so Russian Orthodox churches, although I obviously at age five couldn't say that it was a Russian Orthodox church. But I sensed that it was something very exotic. And then... I was told that it had been my grandmother's and she came from Russia. And so I created this whole narrative, this whole story about it. A couple years later, my beloved little brother uh, did a chemistry experiment right in that cup and destroyed it. No. Yes. Uh. Uh, I was devastated because the cup somehow represented everything that my grandmother would never tell me about her life in the old country. And when I was putting together the uh, burnt pieces of this cup, I saw on the bottom that there was a stamp that said made in USSR. And I realized that I had just created a fiction, that it wasn't from the old country. She hadn't brought it from her childhood to the United States. It was a souvenir that somehow it ended up in my parents' closet. So let's fast forward to 1972. Can you describe what it was like to immerse yourself in Soviet Russia? Yeah, it was uh, kind of frightening, but at the same time exhilarating. I had tried to go there to study. It was in the depths of the Cold War, and as a young American, it was quite difficult to get there, and I wasn't accepted on the one program that would have allowed for a semester of study there. So I went to University of Helsinki instead to study Russian and went on a weekend jaunt uh, with a group of Finns to Leningrad. They liked to go there because the alcohol was cheaper in the Soviet Union. And my first impression after crossing the border and the bus was very thoroughly checked by Soviet guards uh, going into a building in um, what had been part of Finland but was now Soviet Union called Viborg and just smelling cabbage and onions. So my first experience was one that was perhaps not so pleasant. Cabbage and onions smell fantastic, but only when they're well cooked. (laughs) And this smelled old. And the world seemed gray on the other side of the border, and people seemed closed up. But there was also something intriguing 
I met a group of young disaffected Russians and they took me under their wing and I saw a completely different side, one of uh, joyousness and hilarity and also delicious food. There were wonderful hot donuts. This was in November, so it was already cold and snowy. And there were fresh donuts uh, coming right out of these big vats in little kiosks by the railroad station. There were Crimean meat pies called chebureki that also were fried and um, quite luscious and uh, just exploded with flavor in my mouth. There were little shops that sold the Siberian dumplings known as pilmini, where you could go in and get a steaming bowl. So I really uh, had flavors I had never encountered before. And wasn't this around the time that it was dangerous for Russians to interact with Americans? Yes. Uh, They wouldn't have been arrested, but they were often called in and harassed and made to feel very uncomfortable. So the people who did open their homes to me were taking certain risk. But there's this hospitality. The people are warm. The tables are filled with all kinds of food that you wouldn't necessarily have seen in the stores during the Soviet years because they wanted to do whatever they could to honor guests. And that uh, generosity of spirit is something that I think is deeply Russian and that I have wanted to convey to Americans, especially now when things are once again so fraught with Russia. So this cookbook is filled with your stories of Russian culture and spectacular recipes from obscure to well-known. Would you say Russian cuisine is defined by geography? I think originally it was. Again, today, uh, the world is very different, and you can go there and find uh, food and produce from uh, many parts of the world. And so it's not as limited as it once was. What I wanted to do with this book was try to go back to discover the elemental flavors, the foods that uh, people have been cooking for a good, uh, well, in terms of uh, Russian history, Russia accepted Christianity in 988. So that is sort of the beginning of uh, Russian history. And so a thousand years. And these are uh, foods and ingredients that now we consider very healthful. Uh, There's a lot of fermentation, a lot of whole grains, a lot of cultured dairy products, root vegetables, all of these things were what they had to work with because of the cold climate and beautiful, beautiful fish. According to you, what's the true heart of Russian food? I would say that it has to do with a taste for a taste for the sour, um, a tanginess that you get from fermentation, from culturing, from curing. Um, there is a lot of uh, salted fish, there's smoked fish, there are uh, pickles that are done through lacto-fermentation, where you just layer them with salt, and you get these wonderful probiotics. Uh, Russian-style pickles don't use vinegar. Uh, mushrooms are salted. Uh, 
Uh, a lot of the vegetables are very slow cooked. One of the distinctive things about uh, traditional Russian cooking is that they had big masonry stoves. There was a lot of wood. That was one thing that was in abundance in the Russian north. And so people uh, didn't have to spare fuel as they did in other parts of the world. So uh, these stoves were heated to very high temperatures, at which point Russia's wonderful pies could be baked to get beautifully browned crusts. You could bake bread. And then as the temperature fell, you would put in uh, slow-cooked stews or vegetable dishes. One of the revelations for me was just taking turnips, which I think in the States isn't, uh, turnips aren't a go-to vegetable, <laughs> the way, uh, say, broccoli might be. Uh, and you just layer these turnips in a, um, a casserole and cook them very slowly with a little bit of water and a bit of uh, sunflower oil. And they turn out melting in your mouth and are really delicious. As I've said many times on this podcast, my favorite types of cookbooks are ones that are part travelogue and part recipes. And Beyond the North Wind, the photographs make us feel like we're meandering around the countryside. Tell us a little bit about the photos. The photos are extraordinary. I wanted the photographer to be the same photographer who had shot the pictures for my previous cookbook, Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking. His name is Stefan Vettinen, and he's a Swede of Finnish background. And he just uh, captured the landscape photography so beautifully in Fire and Ice, as well as the food shots, that I knew he was the one I wanted. But when I first asked him if he would participate in this book, he hesitated. He had grown up with his mother's stories of really severe hardship and loss during the so-called Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union, 1939-1940. And he had heard this phrase in his childhood, never trust a Russian, even if he's been fried in butter. Oh, wow. And so even though Stefan knew that was, you know, just a a phrase that had resonance for uh, people who had experienced very difficult time. He still had some hesitation. He'd never been to Russia, but he agreed to do it. And he was really the one I wanted for another reason, too. He um, had been in the equivalent of uh, what was the Swedish Navy SEALs. So he's this very hearty, strong, intrepid person. And I feel like he's the only photographer I know who would have gone 200 miles above the Arctic Circle in February to stand on the edge of the Barents Sea for over two hours of midnight in, um, I don't remember what it was, probably minus 20, minus 30 plus wind chill factor to catch the northern lights. And that photograph appears in the book. So he was a wonderful travel companion. I'm interested to hear about the allure of the Arctic for you. I was just there last week. There was a wonderful festival in Sherkinus, Norway, uh, just across the border from Russia, that is called the Barents Spectacle. 
Uh, it's a yearly arts festival that celebrates the return of the sun to these far northern places. And I presented my book there. And once again, I was struck by the quality of the light. So there's the sea and there is snow uh, in the summer. There is the midnight sun. So even though we think of Russia and the far north as uh, a dark place, a perhaps grim place where not a lot of vegetables or other things might grow, it is incredibly beautiful in a very austere kind of crystalline way. And the flavors that you get because of the um, nature of the soil, and then in the summer, the short growing season, but uh, constant sun, means that the flavors are quite intense. And uh, everything just feels magnified to me there. You feel as though you're on the edge of the world, and, and that to me is quite thrilling. The photos to me look like it's quiet. It looks very silent. Yes. Uh, that was another thing I was just reminded of. We went out after midnight to chase the northern lights. And I live in a pretty quiet part of the country here in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. But there's always a little bit of residual noise from a highway that's actually across the border in Vermont. But you, you get uh, sound. And there, uh, unless you're right by the sea, and of course you hear the sound of, of waves, but if you're away from it, it is absolute stillness. And you feel that there is still wilderness in the world. You can go to places where you don't see human trace. My all-time favorite episode of Parts Unknown was when Anthony Bourdain and Zamir Gota drank lots and lots of vodka. In the book you wrote about Russians love of vodka. Can you talk a little bit about that? It is in the summer, very refreshing. You drink it ice cold right out of the freezer. And so it chills and cools. And in the winter, when you're cold, uh, that initial taste is chilling. But then as it uh, slides down your throat and gets into your body, it warms you up. So it's a very functional drink in that regard. It also is really wonderful with um, salty things like caviar or different kinds of smoked fish, salted pickles. It is a perfect accompaniment to the appetizers that Russians call zakuski, which are these small bites that you have to whet the appetite before the meal proper. What I like to do is take plain vodka and infuse it with different flavorings. My favorite is probably horseradish. That's another stereotype about Russian food, that it's very bland. They really love horseradish and strong mustard. So it is not a palate cuisine. So you add some horseradish to vodka, let it infuse for 24 to 48 hours. And it has this beautiful kick. Or you can make a pepper vodka. Another one I like that is quite subtle is you smash some cherry hits and let those infuse. And it is a pale pink vodka that is uh, quite delicate and lovely. 
you always have to toast when you drink vodka. You're never supposed to just drink it. And you toast to your friends. You toast to um, peace. You toast to people's accomplishments. You toast to people who are no longer with us. It is a real art to be poetic with the toast that you give. So on the other hand, I don't think of honey when I think of Russia, but early travelers wrote of great pools and lakes of honey in Russia's forest. It became one of Russia's most valuable exports. Over the weekend, I made your recipe for sour cream honey cake on page 260. Now, sour cream and honey, those are two flavors I wouldn't ever think about putting together. That to me is a wonderfully Russian combination because the honey, the Russians do have a sweet tooth and they always used honey until sugar became more widely available and less expensive in the late 19th century. So that isn't really that long ago. Sour cream mitigates the plain sweetness of honey and gives it that tiny bit of tang that the Russians really like. So you put the two together, and I think it's a pretty brilliant combination. It, that cake is so... I Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it's so light and lovely and so different. The chef who gave me the recipe came from Mormont to demonstrate this cake for the audience, and it was every bit as good as I remembered it in her hands. Now, did she make it square? No, she made it round. Okay. Okay, because in the cookbook, it says to make it in a square, but I couldn't do a square, so I did round. So <laughs> Yeah, you can do it square round. Um, the reason I did it square was so that I could do these uh, free form shapes on a, a baking sheet, but you could make the rounds using a tart ring or a cake pan. The main thing is to have the, the honey cake layers with the sour cream in between that you allow to soften the honey cake layers, and then the whole thing becomes one delicious. Whole. Yesterday, I made your recipe for classic cabbage soup. Can you describe this recipe? This recipe is really awesome. You know how I said at the beginning of our conversation that my first smell of the Soviet Union was of cabbage and onions and it wasn't good? Yep. I discovered old recipes for what is known as 24-hour soup. So it's not a quickly made cabbage soup where you just saute some onions and garlic and then perhaps you would have a, a, a beef broth and then you would add the cabbage and you cook it and there's your cabbage soup. The classic Russian soup is made with sauerkraut. And again, it is that taste for the sour that differentiates the Russian cabbage soup from others. And the brilliant thing about the 24-hour one is that you take the sauerkraut and you bake it in the oven. And that caramelizes the sugars that are in the cabbage. And so you get this really, mm, I'm actually starting to salivate as I think about it. <laughs> you get this really wonderfully richly flavored sauerkraut that you then freeze. Of course, in old Russia, in the winter, you just stuck the pot outdoors and it froze. Uh, now I take it and put it in the freezer. And from that previously frozen sauerkraut, which also mellows the flavor of it so that it's not so sharp, you make this cabbage soup. 
And it is really beautiful. And it completely upended my ideas about what cabbage soup is. And now I love it. It was so multi-layered. And and you're right. The um, I think the roasting of the sauerkraut mellowed out the sour part. Yeah. So, uh, so good. It has a, a bit of a sweet edge, but it's not Now for my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. Aside from this cookbook, what is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? If there's one cookbook that I keep going back to and still discovering new recipes from, it's Richard Sachs's Classic Home Desserts. And it's a compendium of, of baking and other kinds of desserts with some historical recipes, with copious headnotes. But the main thing is that all of his recipes work beautifully. And one of my favorites that I make all the time is chocolate cloud cake. It's a flourless chocolate cake that sort of sinks like a a crater in the middle, and then you fill that crater with whipped cream. And it just melts in your mouth. Where can we find you on the web and social media? So my website is Dara Goldstein. That's one word, daragoldstein.com. Instagram, which I love, is dara.goldstein. Twitter is dara underscore Goldstein. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Dara, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks so much for your interest, Susie, and enjoy your cabbage soup tonight. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.